You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. great joy to now turn our attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word. And so we come now this morning to Psalm 34. Book of Psalms, the biggest book in our Bibles. If you flip it open right in the middle, it's right around there. And we're in Psalm 34 as we've been working through these Psalms one by one. We're in this first book of the Psalter. As I said over and over, this first book highlights the kingship of God over his people. God is our king. In particular, there's a coming king who will redeem us, speaking of Christ. And our king is a good king. We saw in Psalm 32, it is a king who forgives. In Psalm 33, he's a king worthy of our praise. And we come to Psalm 34 today, a king whose promises are greater than our circumstances. This wonderful Psalm of David. So let us hear God's word. Let's pay heed and listen to these words this morning. So hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. I believe that if we took the life of David and made it into a movie, that I think it could be a box office hit. Now, I'm no movie producer, but I think it has all of the important elements of a good movie. It has rags to riches story, bravery, palace intrigue, 
action scenes, escape sequences, romantic interests. Now, David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, it wouldn't be so scandalous to the world as it would be for those of us who take God's law seriously. But I think it would make an interesting and exciting movie. This psalm gives us a snapshot a little bit into David's mind and his life in one of these really important episodes in his life. This is one of 14 psalms that have a description of the life of David, what's going on in his life when he wrote this. And we see this one happened when he was before Abimelech, when he changed his behavior. We read of this earlier. And I'll just back up briefly to set this in a little bit more context in David's life. In 1 Samuel 20, David had been anointed king, but he had not yet been crowned king. Saul was on the throne. Saul hated David. And David got word in chapter 20 from Jonathan, David's best friend and Saul's son, that Saul indeed was trying to put David to death. So in this field in the middle of the night, from there, David fled. He took with him no provisions, no weapons, no food, no friends to help him, no support or companionship. He went with just his person. And we flip over to 1 Samuel 21, the next chapter, and we see David's hungry. And where does he go? He finds this little city of Nob, and he finds a priest there and asks the priest for the holy bread. The priest gives it to him, but the priest asks some questions. The priest seems a little suspicious. Why are you alone? Why don't you have food? Why don't you even have a sword? And David says, oh yeah, about that. I know, remember when I killed Goliath, his sword's here in Nob. Can I please take that with me? And so he gives him the sword of Goliath and he takes the sword of Goliath with him. He has his food, he has his sword. But the narrator of Samuel puts in a fascinating line and I paraphrase. It says, one of Saul's chief men was there in Nob that day. Saul had his eyes on David. He knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what he was doing. And indeed, after the, the episode I'm about to recount, Saul sends that man back to Nob and destroys all the priests there, kills them all because they gave refuge to David and helped him. But after David leaves Nob, he flees, knowing that the priest was asking some questions, knowing that maybe somebody was on his trail. He has to flee Saul's jurisdiction. So he leaves Israel and he goes to Philistia. He goes to the city called Gath. You might remember another famous person in the Bible who's from Gath. It's Goliath. So David shows up in Gath with no friends, no food, but except all he has is the sword of the man he killed who is from the city. And this is the account that we read earlier when David shows up to the king in uh, 1 Samuel 21, he's called Achish. And here in uh, Psalm 34, he's called Abimelech. And Abimelech is just a title that's used for the Philistine kings, kind of like Pharaoh for Egyptian kings and Caesar for Roman kings. And so he goes before this king, Philistia, and asks for help. He asked for asylum. Would you give me refuge here? And while he's in the king's presence, all the people of Philistia, they say, do you not know who this guy is? He's the king. And he's the one who's put to death tens of thousands of people. And so the king turns his attention to David. And David is in a tricky spot. He knows he's up against a wall. And what does he do? Well, it's interesting. And we go to 1 Samuel. And David does not get down on his knees and pray. We don't see that in the account in Samuel, but that's actually what we're seeing in our passage today in Psalm 34. He's actually praying to the Lord. We'll come to that in a minute. But what does he do? He acts insane. He acts like a, like a madman. He lets the beard dribble down his beard, his, his spittle dribble down his beard. He starts making marks on the doors and on the gates, acting like a madman. And the king says, who in the world is this man? Get him out of my presence. And so they send him out. And there's David, safe yet again. 
through this crazy providence, through him taking these crazy actions of literally acting insane, God rescued him and he was free. This psalm is what's called an acrostic. We've come across these before, where the first line of each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It starts with Aleph, their A, and it goes through the whole Hebrew alphabet. And so this is how the children would memorize it, and adults would memorize this psalm. They could remember the first letter of each line, and it would help them memorize it and help them know it. And it was their way, instead of rhyming or something like in our poetry, this is the way that, that poetry was expressed. So it could stick in their minds, and it was a wonderfully a creative way of writing a song such as this. But it is interesting, we go back to that first Samuel narrative, that there's no mention of David praying to God. There's no mention even of God's deliverance. And many commentators on that passage will say, this is David taking things into his own hands. He's not trusting the Lord in that circumstance. He's doing something God does not really want him to do. Those questions aside, David looks back and realizes God was in there the whole time. He had sought the Lord. He had prayed to God. He had asked for deliverance. And so David's looking back at his circumstances and now can praise God for what he's done. So in other words, this. In understanding life's circumstances, David looks up before he looks down. He looks up to God and then he looks at his circumstances. I think we're prone to do the other thing, to go the other way, to look down at our circumstances and then look up at God and say, why? Why am I here? What is going on? But David takes the other tact. He looks up at God, looks at his faithfulness, looks at his promises, and then looks back down at his circumstances. And I think this psalm is helping us see that. So we're going to look at the whole flow of the psalm today. And this is a wonderful psalm. There's so many individual lines we could take out and spend a whole sermon on so many individual lines and phrases here. Some of our most beloved phrases come from this psalm. But we're not going to do that. We're going to look at it as a whole and look at the flow. And I think as we understand this flow, we're going to grow in our understanding that when we trust Christ, we have great comfort knowing his promises are greater than our circumstances. When we trust in Christ, we know his promises are greater than our circumstances. So let's see if we can trace something of a flow here. See how David is looking up before he looks down at his circumstances. So let's first look, and if you're reading in the ESV, you'll notice that there's some breaks in the ESV, and those actually provide good natural breaks that I'll be following today. And so first we'll look at verses one through three, where we're centered, we're beginning on God's greatness, but it's really a call to praise. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. But it begins with this assumption that God is worthy of praising. God is worthy of blessing. Why would we bless and praise God? As verse two says, why would we boast in God? Or verse three, why would we magnify him? Why? David's assuming this. It's because of his character, because of his greatness, because of who he is. We must know who this God is. In our day and age, if you ask if somebody is great, we say, well, he's done X, Y, and Z. So yes, LeBron James is great because he's a great basketball player. But that's not what great means when we're looking at the essence of a person. A person is not great because of what they do. It's because of their character, because of their purity, because of their greatness, because of their sovereignty. And this, in this way, there's only one who is great. It's God alone. God in his majesty, in his holiness, in his 
greatness is worthy of praise. And so we begin by considering this God, and that, that's what the Lord's Prayer begins with, does, does it not? Our Father, which art in heaven. We think of him who he is. It is God as our Father, the one who is in heaven, speaking of his greatness. That is why we praise him. And David here is desiring to spend all of his time in praise. There's not a time when we are not to be praising him. It says in verse one, to do this at all times, to praise continually. And yes, praise is actions. We do things to praise God. We show up to worship. We sing, we pray, we do all kinds of things. But I think also David speaks here because it's impossible to literally be in worship and praising God for your entire life. He's speaking also of an attitude here, a disposition of our heart. Is our heart's disposition to praise God, the maker of heaven and earth? Or is our attitude's disposition to praise myself and to lift up myself and to glorify myself? This thing, what David is saying is getting to the heart of the matter. To praise God at all times means I am relinquishing control and saying it's not about me, this is about somebody else. And my fundamental heart disposition is towards God and his glory and his praise. Oh, if we were like this, if this was indeed our fundamental attitude all the time, how would that cut into our complaining, our anger? We would no longer have time for these kinds of things. We would be totally set on him who is above, on the God who provides all things. David calls others to join him. This isn't just an individual thing, but he's calling others. Nobody is excluded from this call, this invitation to come worship the king of heaven and earth, the one who is sovereign in control of all things. Anybody is called, everybody is called, anybody can come to worship him. David particularly names the humble in verse two. Let the humble hear and be glad. Those who are otherwise excluded from the important circles of society can come and find refuge and come and praise God. But I think here, even more deeply than being socially humble, he's speaking of a spiritual humility. All those who understand their poverty before God, you are not excluded from coming and praising him. You are called into his presence. And indeed, he will even robe you and enable you to come into his presence. But all are called, and especially the humble, especially those who are downtrodden, especially those, as we'll see later, those who are brokenhearted, those who are crushed in spirit. Come and be glad here in God's presence. And so when we consider God, our first reaction ought to be to praise him. And this praise takes many forms, publicly, privately, individually, our whole attitude, confessing our sins is indeed praising him. All of these things, our first reaction to God is to praise him. He, there's nothing greater on heaven and earth and he desires our whole being. And so, as we move to the next section, we've thought of God's greatness as, as David's called us to praise God. We turn as David reflects now on prayer in verses four through seven. And particularly, he's reflecting on this episode with Abimelech, how God delivered him when, and he was in that moment. Verse four says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. At that moment where he was between where, where he was in the king's courtroom and the crowds were coming and saying, this man is the king of Israel. Why would, you, why would you not put him to death? David sought the Lord and the Lord answered him. He went to the Lord in prayer. We don't see it in 1 Samuel 21. It's not mentioned there. It doesn't say, and David prayed to the Lord, but it was there. 
Psalm 34 tells us. How much more praying is there in these characters in Scripture than Scripture actually tells us? I think it's everywhere. Prayer is the normal disposition of the Christian and the believer in the Old Testament. And it's all throughout the pages. We don't see it, but Psalm 34 shows us it is there. They're constantly seeking the Lord, praying and asking for his help. This is a normal part of the Christian life. Prayer is a standard way of operating. And in fact, we're called to do it in 1 Thessalonians without ceasing. It's just like praise is to be done. Continually, we are to pray without ceasing. And one way to humble a Christian is to ask him, how's your prayer life going these days? Because all of us admit, yes, we want to pray more, or at least we want to want to pray more. We don't. But look at this glorious picture. David's not not, um, uh, chastising you and me for not praying as we should, but he's putting a beautiful portrait of what prayer looks like before our eyes, that we would see this as a wonderful thing. He says he sought the Lord. Prayer is seeking after the Lord. It's the essence of this kind of prayer for help. Saying, God, please hear me. God, I need you. God, listen to the prayers of your people. And imagine that, that he hears. I mean, really, think about that. This God that we said is so great, so holy, so righteous. He hears you. He knows you. He listens to your every prayer. Imagine that. That is an incredible and glorious truth. And it is only true because he is all powerful. He is omnipotent. He knows all things and he is everywhere. And so he knows, he hears, he answers. And it's even more abundant than that though. Prayer is not just about me asking God and then God doing something for me. I love what he says. In verse five, he says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. When we pray, God is at work changing you. When we are in prayer, we are communing with God. We are beholding his face as it were, even though as Paul says, we see through a mirror dimly right now. We are communing with God. God is changing us. God is making our face radiant, just like Moses on top of the mountain who saw God, was able to speak to him face to face. He came down and literally his face was radiant because he was with God. But that is what God is doing to us as well. Not visibly making our face radiant, but we are being changed as we enjoy the presence of God, as we seek his face. The very presence of God changes us. And it's a wonderful picture that God is listening, God is working in our lives, and he's protecting us. That great picture in verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around them, those who fear him and delivers them. It's a great picture. Whether he's speaking of one of those angels, part of the heavenly host, worshiping God in heaven, or whether he's actually speaking of Christ himself, we need not decide that today. But this is a wonderful picture of God's personal care for his people. Individual personal care for his people. An angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Angels are at work in our midst, in your life, protecting you. Isn't that an amazing, crazy thing even to say and believe? It is true. God is at work protecting you. 
And so we're dipping our toe, beginning to see the goodness of God and these promises about prayer and showing us how glorious and wonderful it is. We come to the next section, verses eight through 10, where we are putting God's goodness on center focus. And it's really here a call to experience that goodness of God. We love this first verse, verse eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love this because it reminds us that Christianity, our faith, is not simply something that stays up here. Typically, us Reformed people, we like our categories. We like our theology. We like our doctrine. We like to make sense of things. And that's great and wonderful. And I love that. But we're not just brains on a stick. We're not just here to understand things as best as we can and get an A plus on our theology paper and be good to get into heaven. We're embodied people, both body and soul and mind. And what this is a reminder that we are not just to know that God is good, but we can even believe this, experience that God is good. You can even experience it in your life that God is good. How? Well, there's two parts here. First is tasting. There's tasting. And and this is a sense of, 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 ourselves having a sense of his goodness. God is allowing us to experience his goodness in a way that we can comprehend. And there's the tasting, then the seeing aspect is that realizing and coming to fruition of these truths. And so the Lord is allowing us to taste in a small way what that feast will be like on the final day when we will enjoy our whole being, the goodness of God forever and ever. But now, for now, we get to taste it. We get to know God in little ways in our lives and in his providences, he's showing us his goodness. In David's deliverance, he's showing his goodness. In the way he's answered your prayers, he's showing his goodness. In the way he's not answering your prayers, he's showing his goodness. Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says this. There's nothing on the part of God to prevent the godly from arriving at the knowledge of his goodness by actual experience. There's nothing on the part of God to prevent the godly from arriving at a knowledge of his goodness by actual experience. God enables us to experience his goodness. And we'll see that this is not just an experience we have in times of outward prosperity and deliverance. This is a tasting and a seeing that we can have always because God is always good, no matter the circumstance. And I think here it's possible that David is speaking about the feasts that were given to Israel. The feasts to remind Israel of God's goodness. The feasts, think of just, for example, the Passover, to remind Israel year after year, who are you, Israel? We are a people who have been redeemed by God and given a place to worship him. Look look what God has done to redeem his people, Israel, out of bondage to slavery and draw them into the promised land by partaking in that Passover meal, by literally eating the lamb and drinking the wine, they were tasting God's goodness. This was meal was set for them to know, I am good, I am your God. Of course, that's what we have as well. Where God beckons his people to the table to taste that God is good. This is God's table, as we'll come to later, to show us, I have done everything for you. No matter what's happening in your life, I am good, and you are beloved, my child. My son has died for you. 
He's given you eternal life. He's given you righteousness. You enjoy my presence. Taste it now as a foretaste of that eternal feast. God's goodness we can taste, whether in his providence that he's given us in our lives, but especially as we come to the supper. Taste and see that he is good. The next section, verses 11 through 14 There's a question that David's answering. And the question is this, okay, in light of this, in light of God's goodness, in light of his greatness, in light of this communion that I can have with him, what he's doing for me, this gracious provision that I have not earned, that I don't deserve, what do I do? What am I called to do? And this is a response of wisdom. This section, verses 11 through 14, is wisdom and instruction. And this this applies to both children and adults. It applies to everyone who can hear. David's calling children, little ones, anyone who can understand, and adults, to listen. Here is how we fear the Lord. And what does he say? Verses 13 and 14. This is how we respond to God's grace. This is what we do not to earn God's grace, but this is what we do now that we have been recipients of it. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Your words matter. What you say matters, especially in our, in our world where it's so easy to throw out worthless, meaningless words out on the internet. Those words matter. We think they might not. We think they're frivolous. We think they're just playing. We think it doesn't. It has no significance. It does. Your words matter. Guard your mouth and your keyboard. Watch what you say. Do what you say should honor the Lord Refrain from evil, refrain from deceit, but it's not just our words, but he calls us to actions. This is such an overarching statement for our lives. Turn away from evil and do good. Pursue that which is good. The Christian life is not about do not do these 10 things, but now as redeemed children, we're called to seek good positively, not just refraining from evil. We're called to love our neighbors in every way. And yes, the Ten Commandments is a great way to start understanding what we can do to serve our neighbor. But we have a positive vision. It's not just watching out for the the evil things to avoid, but it's how can we pursue, which glorifies and honors the Lord. Seeking peace, seeking good, pursuing that. And why do we do this? Because we are delivered. You have been rescued. You've been given new life. And so this is how we can express our gratitude to God. If we're not grateful, this will not make sense to us. If we're not grateful for salvation, we won't want to pursue what is good. But this is a natural overflowing of our heart of gratitude to God, seeking to obey and loving others. Then we come to these final few verses here, beginning at verse 15. First, we'll look at verse verse 15 through 18. But these last two sections move really into God's promises. As we have new circumstances, difficulties arise in our life, what do we need to know about God to be able to understand them and make sense of them? So from these verses 15 to 18, four things here. What do we need to understand about God? First, God privileges his people with a special status. We see verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God's people have a special status. His face is on them. He looks toward them and and loves them and protects them. But he's against those who do evil and will cut them off 
from the earth. Those who are not his, God is set against them and his countenance of judgment is on them. And there's a promise of their ruin and their destruction. So God does have privileged, uh, he privileges you, his people. You have a privileged status before him. The second one, the second point here, the second thing about God to know is that deliverance is not always in the form we're asking for. Verses 17 and 18, they have two seemingly contradictory things at the same time presented. It's not always comfort or health or relief from the situation that God's going to give us. See in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. But then verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It doesn't say he saves the crushed in spirit and they're no longer crushed in spirit. It doesn't say those brokenhearted are no longer brokenhearted, but those are the ones he saves. And yet at the same time, verse 17, he delivers them out of all their trouble because we realize that there's a trouble that we're in greater than our circumstances. And the trouble of standing before a righteous God with sin, with our defilement, And so what we have here is two things. That one, yes, we are delivered from that ultimate enemy of sin by Christ and the cross. But our deliverance in this life isn't always going to look how we think it should. We won't always have that health or relief or comfort. A third point is a continuation of this, and it's that we are delivered from final judgments. We're delivered from final judgment, even while God still provides many times of extraordinary physical deliverance in this life. David is case in point. And God does deliver in our lives from difficult situations. He can, but he doesn't promise that he always will. And we've said this many times, but many people will go to their grave where their chronic illnesses never healed, with relationships never fully restored in this life. But we are delivered from final judgment. And that's where verse 18 is so dear to us all. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And this takes us back to number one. The deliverance we are promised here and now is that we are not alone God is with us and near us. And especially in those times of brokenness and confusion, being in turmoil, that brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, God is near to you in that moment. You can know that God has not turned his face away from you. God's face is upon you, even when you feel the depths of brokenness of this life. So what a joy of God's nearness this is. Even though he is great and mighty, as we began with, God is yet intimate and near with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And so we turn to verses 19 through 21, this final section, to look at God's deliverance yet again. And again, here we have the two categories, the categories of the righteous we see in verse 19 and the category of the wicked in verse 21. And both these categories, the righteous and the wicked, those who look to Christ and those who do not, both of these categories experience afflictions. Affliction is prevalent in this life. It says even in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Right? We don't preach that if you come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. 
Because they won't. And in fact, in many ways, life gets more complicated because now you're wrestling with your sin as well on top of all the other problems that you've had. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but also the wicked have afflictions as well. And so this affliction is going to do one of two things to us, depending on whether you are in Christ or whether you're not. For the believer, you will experience many afflictions, but there will be deliverance from them. I think we're turning a little bit in our perspective when we get to verse 19. We're turning less towards this life here and now, and now we have an eternal lens that we're putting on. We're looking to the future We're looking to the ultimate promise, the end of all things, when there will be deliverance out of all of our afflictions. Even though now we're brokenhearted and we're crushed in spirit, there will be deliverance out of all of those things. I think it's astonishing how verse 20 is dropped right in the middle of this discussion. Verse 20, and it's quoted in John 19. And John 19 says this, Speaking of Jesus, who's on the cross. But when the soldiers came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. John helps us understand verse 20 is actually a prophecy about Christ. It's about him, even on the cross, who died for us, who in a sense was broken, but not a single bone in his body was broken in fulfillment of prophecy. We see how how are we delivered out of all of the afflictions that we experience now? It's this man upon the cross. He is the one that delivers us. It is only through him that we can have any hope. And this is a mere shadow of showing us Christ. But now we know clearly and definitively, without question, it is Christ who delivers us. Looking to him on the cross who died and rose again, that we are delivered It is Christ who is the agent of our ultimate eternal deliverance, the one who conquers our sin and that final enemy that we all will have to face, death itself. In verse 21, it addresses those non-believers, those who don't have that man who was on the cross for them. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Right now in this life, those who are wicked, those who hate the righteous, they seem to have privilege and status. They seem to be the ones who are doing great and well in the world. But there's a promise that says they will be condemned. They will be slain. This is God's righteous judgment. It is God's righteous judgment that's deserved by all of us. We're not better than anybody else. We simply have Jesus Christ. So those apart from Christ hear this today you will be condemned for eternity apart from Christ. As we saw in verse one, or the first section here, let the humble hear and be glad. There's a call here that you, even apart from Christ today, can know this savior, can be redeemed, can be delivered out of all your troubles. Are you brokenhearted? Are you at the end of the rope and know you are a sinner or know there's no hope for you? He's there on the cross who's died for all those who look to him. This is a call. Do not stay on the path of the wicked. Do not continue to hate the righteous. But as David says, 
how he loves the saints. He loves to dwell within them. Oh, come love the saints. Come look to Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is a future orientation that we see. Just because life is easy and nice now doesn't mean it's going to be like that for eternity. So I ask you, what is your eternal hope? And we end with verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What a blessed hope. Your life is redeemed. If you take refuge in him, notice the parallel there, there, you will not be condemned. If you look to Christ, you will not be condemned. But in verse 21, those who hate the righteous will be condemned. This is an echo, echoed in Paul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for you, even though, even if you are brokenhearted because of your own sin, even if you've made your life a wreck and a mess right now, and maybe there is no way out of it, you think and see, there's no condemnation for you in Christ. Every one of your sins is on him. And the key here, we see it in verse 22, we see it in verse 8. Those who take refuge in him, those who cling to that man on the cross, look to the man whose no bones were broken, but yet died for us. That is the key. That is how you receive these great promises here. In your affliction, he is your refuge. Otherwise, your affliction will destroy you. You see, David is looking back at the situation. He's looking down on his situation after first looking up at God. Who he is, what are the promises he's made for me, both now and for eternity? And he can take great solace in that. He has great hope and joy in that. But where do you look at your situation first? Think of your life. Where, where do we look at our lives and our situations first? And then we look up to God and say, why are you doing this to me? I didn't deserve this. You may not say it, but your anger does. You may not articulate it to any of your closest friends, but your impatience is showing that you actually believe that in your heart. You're actually questioning God's goodness. And indeed, if you are questioning God's goodness, get it out on the table. Bring it before him. Say, oh Lord, help me. But oftentimes, this is a result of us looking first at ourselves, our situations, and then at God where David is showing us, God indeed is calling us to stop looking down and then looking up, but look up at him, the God who can reorient you to eternity, who can show you his blessed goodness, who can show you his grace for you in the midst of your sin and your failures. Let that teach you. Let that refresh you. Let that promise carry you. And then look down at your situation and say, how can I honor and glorify my God where I am today? Yes, it is, I am filled with being broken. There's, I am brokenhearted, my spirit is crushed, but I know the God who controls the end of all things. The end is as sure today as it was when Christ came. The end is as sure today as it was when David wrote the Psalm. We will not be condemned. No matter where you are today, God will hear those who cry out to him. And today he invites you, all of us, this day to taste and see that he is good. Let us look to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your greatness, your 
goodness. We thank you that you called us and enabled us to pray, to come into your presence. You've shown us how we can walk a life of wisdom and honoring you. Thank you that you are near. You deliver us from all, all of our troubles. And we know that, Father, that day will, that promise will come to complete fruition on that final day of Christ's return. And so we pray that you would hasten that day. You would make us desirous of that day, that our eyes would be fixed upon you, and that by your grace, you would enable us to be ready for every circumstance that comes our way. We admit our failings. We admit that we often look at our world and then up to you. But help us, O oh Lord, to know you, the true and living God, and be reoriented to the world based upon your promises and your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you will show us that you are good. May you do that for us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.